0: Well, we have been working our way through First John, and last week I don't have hand gestures this week. Last week I actually had hand gestures. If you were here, uh, we were looking at the first six verses of First John chapter four, and my hand gestures were not very creative, but they were. Do, does anybody remember it? Reject the lies. Good job. Reject the lies. Remember the victory and receive the truth. And so last week we looked in the opening verses of First John chapter four about knowledge and truth in the Christian life. Now we return to a theme, which could be the single word that describes 1 John, and that is love. So in uh, these uh, verses we're looking at this morning, 1 John chapter 4, verses 7 to 12, I've titled the sermon, The Love of God is for Us and in Us. The love of God is for us and in us. But before I begin the passage, uh, read the passage, I want to begin with a story. About Ross Andrew McGinnis. Ross Andrew McGinnis was born and raised in Pennsylvania. And when he was in kindergarten, his teacher asked him, "What do you want to be?" And he drew a picture of a little army soldier. And that's what he became. First, he went to Fort Banning. I'm not a military. Fort Banning in Georgia. Then he went on to Germany and then to Iraq. December fourth, two thousand six. Ross Andrew McGinnis was a gunner in a Humvee in Adamaya, Eastern Baghdad. A grenade was thrown at the Humvee and he saw it go into the vehicle. He called out grenade, but knowing that the men beneath him were trapped, he did the unthinkable. He dropped inside, pressed his body against the grenade. It exploded. And Ross Andrew McGinnis saved the life of Sergeant First Class Cedric Thomas, Staff Sergeant Ian Newland, Sergeant Lyle Bueller, and Specialist Sean Lawson. He was 19 years old. His commanding general said, Four men are alive because this soldier embodied our Army values and gave his life. President George W. Bush at the reception ceremony when his family was given his medal of honor, rightly so posthumously, said, May the deep respect of our whole nation be a comfort to the family of this fallen soldier. May God always watch over the country he served and keep us ever grateful for the life of Ross Andrew McGinnis. Deep respect and gratitude. He died for America, and America is a great country. I don't want anyone to die in war for any country, but if you have to die for a country, die for the United States of America. Don't die for North Korea. (laughs) That would be a loss. This is actually a consistent theme in the history of remembrance. Thucydides observes 2,400 years ago that Pericles, when giving a funeral oration for men who died for the city of Athens, praises Athens. He says, these men died for a great cause. They died for a great city. They died for democracy. 160 years ago this November, This November is the 160th anniversary of Abraham Lincoln speaking at Gettysburg, and he does something very similar. He asks us to remember those who gave their lives that the nation might live. And then famously, he said that they died, that this nation under God shall have a new birth of freedom and that government of the people, by the people, for the people shall not perish from the earth. Well, in John chapter 4, verses 7 to 12, John has a similar theme, but with a twist. We say this soldier died well because he died for America. We look for the cause to which the soldier died. But John in the passage before us is going to ask us to look at the person dying to look at the person dying. We are called to love one another, not because we are great, but because someone great gave his life for us. In fact, I think we can say this of soldiers as well, right? Of course, Ross Andrew McGinnis died for the United States of America. But I guess in that moment of decision, he died for his friends. He died for the people that he loved. And so too, President Bush rightly hits the note, the 440 uh, hurts. He says, no one outside this man's family can know the true weight of their loss. But in words spoken long ago, we are told how to measure the kind of devotion that Ross McGinnis showed on his last day. Greater love hath no man than this that a man lay down his life for his friends. And John is asking us this morning, I promise I will read the passage eventually, but John is asking us this morning not to judge the people in the pews around you by themselves, not to to judge the value of Jesus's death by the quality of the people around you, but instead to judge the quality of the people around you By the person who died for them, the Lord Jesus himself. In the face of such heroic self-sacrifice of the Son of God, how can we not love a little those whom Jesus loved so much? Now let's turn to the passage. First John chapter four, verses seven to 12. Beloved, let us love one another for love is from God and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love in this. The love of God was made manifest among us that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. And this is love, not that we've loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us. And his love is perfected in us. May his love be perfected in us this morning as we consider this passage. We'll do so under three headings. Hopefully they're up there for you. Uh, First, we're going to look at the demand of love in verses 7 to 8. And then the next two verses, we'll look at the display of love. And then finally, in the last two verses, we'll look at the development of love. So demand, display, and development of love. If you want the sermon in a sentence, I think you can say that we uh, love is developed in us so that we can meet love's demand by following in the footsteps of the one who displayed love for his people. All right, demand of love. Notice right here at the start in verse 7 that he says, beloved. So he actually is going to exhort us to love, but he's demonstrating by his address that he loves. Us, that he loves the recipients of this letter. So we must love one another. We must love those for whom, you know, who is the one another? Sometimes we gloss over this. But he's going to make clear in verses 9 to 10 that the one another that he's talking about is the people for whom Jesus died. So, fellow Christians. And I want us to think about how loving one another is a dividing line between those who know God and are from God and those who do not know God and who are not from God. We see this in the way that he gives in these first two verses under demand of love, a twofold rationale for why we should love one another. That is why we should love fellow believers. The first is positive, and then the second is negative. So positively, he says in verse seven, love one another for love is from God. That's verse seven. And then verse eight, God is love. Being from God kind of constitutes a little mini theme. In 1 John chapter 4, you see it in verse 1, 2, 3, 4, and 6. And this, is, this is verse 7. So if you, if you look at your Bibles, if you have them, or I'll just read out the little points. Verse 1 of chapter 4, you test whether spirits are from God. Verse 2, by this you know the Spirit of God. Um, every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. Verse three, if you don't confess Jesus, you're not from God. Verse four, you are from God, little children. Uh, And then verse six is um, we are from God. So you're from God. We're from God. Test whether spirits are from God. Here's how you know a spirit is not from God. So it's a, it's a, mini theme. Now, what does being from God mean? Now, normally it means that you have some kind of natural pedigree. Like if you are from this family, then you were born into that family. But we know that such is not the case. We know that we have been adopted, that we are from God, but there's serious problems, which we'll get to in a moment, about our relationship with with God. This is why John has to say that Jesus was a propitiation, a sin bearing sacrifice for us, precisely because we do not naturally belong to God. Instead, we are his enemies. But marvelously and wonderfully, as John makes clear in his gospel, in the gospel of John, chapter 1, verses 12 and 13, he makes clear that we. Though aliens and strangers to God become his children. Listen to these words. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God who were born, not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Being from God means that you belong to his family, that you've been adopted in to God's own family, that we are brothers and sisters, that we belong to God. Now, what kind of family is the family that we have been adopted into? Well, it's a family of love. It's a family of love because God is love, verse eight. And because God is love, love characterizes his family. Jonathan Edwards, the great uh, New England preacher in the 18th century. My favorite sermon that I've ever read by him is Heaven is a World of Love. It's a reflection, a meditation on 1 Corinthians chapter 13. And in this meditation, this sermon on 1 Corinthians 13, Jonathan Edwards unsurprisingly appeals to 1 John chapter 4 verse 8, God is love, to advance his claim that heaven is a world of love. Listen to this. And this renders heaven, a world of love for God is the fountain of love as the sun is the fountain of light. And therefore, the glorious presence of God in heaven fills heaven with love as the sun placed in the midst of the visible heavens in a clear day fills the world with light. The apostle tells us that God is love and therefore seeing he is an infinite being. It follows that he is an infinite fountain of love, seeing he is an all-sufficient being. It follows that he is a full, he is full and overflowing and inexhaustible fountain of love. And in that he is an unchangeable and eternal being. He is an unchangeable and eternal fountain of love. The only living and true God who spoke the world into existence by the word of his power is a God of inexpressible love. And so to be in his family is to be in a family of love. So because we are in a family of love, loved deeply by God, we must love one another. That's why I say that it's not a, um, let's love one another. You could take that exhortation as some kind of suggestion, but here I take it as a demand, right? You have, you're from a family of love and you must love. Now, in case you're questioning like, well, maybe I can be a Christian and not love. We have the positive rationale, but we also have the negative rationale. That's in verse eight. If you do not love, you do not know God. It cannot be any clearer. Not loving fellow believers is an indelible mark of a lack of faith, of not belonging to God. It is a dividing line. You'll remember perhaps in Judges chapter 12, there are fugitives of Ephraim who are at the fords of the Jordan. And they say, let me go over, let me go over. Well, a man would be asked if he was an Ephraimite. And when he lied and he said no, they would say then say Shibboleth. Say Shibboleth. And he would say Sibboleth. So not, so Sibboleth, not like a shoe, Shibboleth. He could only say Sibboleth. He could not pronounce the sh sound in Shibboleth. And so he would be exposed. Loving God and loving others is the Shibboleth of the Christian life. If you do not love other people then you do not love god loving other people is a sign that you love god loving other christians so we have to ask ourselves this morning what about you do you speak the language of love or do you claim to love jesus but despise those who follow jesus some of us may have to say this morning that our long-standing bitterness towards christians is a mark of unbelief. Others of us may have a haughty or a disagreeable spirit. And so we have to repent of not loving others in that way. And then finally, hopefully, there's some of us who just rejoice in love, who delight to be reminded that they should love fellow believers. Whatever is appropriate for you this morning, in your own heart to respond to the demand of love, I encourage you to do it. So that's the first point, the demand of love. The second is the display of love in verses 9 and 10. This The display of love. Now, sometimes that people talk about love, and by love, I love something, they mean that something is an object for my own personal pleasure. People talk about how I love sports. People even talk about things that are killing them, like... I love cigarettes. You know, people say this sort of thing. And is this the kind of love that we're talking about here? No, obviously not for two reasons. First, we can't can't water down the appeal to love one another. As Jesus says in Matthew chapter five, if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? I mean, how convenient would it be if John was simply saying, hey, love the people who like and like you back? That's not what he's saying here. But secondly, and this is why we call this, this is why I've called this heading the display of love, is that the example that he gives of love is not somebody who loved, uh, somebody who loved him back, but someone who gave the ultimate sacrifice, not for a friend, but for an enemy. Namely, the sacrifice of the Lord Jesus. Now, instead of trying to uh, make us feel uh, discouraged or downcast reflecting on the cross, he wants, I think, us to be greatly encouraged. If you have any doubt that God is love, if you have any doubt that God loves you, if if you have any doubt that God is some kind of hypocrite asking you to love difficult people, when he remains untouched and untroubled by these difficult people in church. Well, then think otherwise. Look to the cross of Christ. There is a display of love. Verse nine. This love was made manifest among us. Manifest among us. You can look to the cross of Christ and you can see the son of God bearing your sin and you know Jesus loves me. Now let's be very clear. This is a display of love, but it is not a mere display of love. If sacrifice, if self sacrifice is a mere display of love, then it's more a tragedy than a triumph. I say this gently, very gently. There are, there are soldiers who receive the Medal of Honor trying to save someone. But both the soldier and the person he's trying to save die. It's still a heroic act. It's still a heroic act. It's still a display of love, but it does not achieve its objective. And John wants us to know that the death of Jesus is not like that. It is a display of love, but he rescues his bride, the church. It's a display of love but it's a display of love that is effective. How do we know this? Because he appeals specifically to a very technical word, propitiation. Verse 10, and this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. That is to say, the death of Jesus did real work. What does propitiation mean? It means that Christ on the cross satisfied the wrath of God against us for the just wrath of God against us for our sins and that he was punished in our place. So we are not punished, but we are set free. He died and we live. He suffered and we flourish. He was humiliated, but we are exalted. As Isaiah 53 says, he was he was pierced. For our transgressions, he was crushed. For our iniquities, upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. Ross Andrew McGinnis knew what he was doing when he threw himself upon a grenade. Make no doubt about it. The Lord Jesus Christ knew all the more what was required of him when he was born of a Virgin Mary. And he set his face towards Jerusalem towards the cross. John makes this clear. Verse 9. God sent his son that we might live through him. And verse 10. His son was the propitiation for our sin. Now, and it's against the example of Jesus that John says, "Love one another. Do not disapprove of those For whom Christ gave everything. Jesus paid it all. And Jesus' display of love is a helpful tool for us to think about how we can love each other and sacrifice for one another, even while we disapprove of what the other person's doing. It's not as though I can say to you, well, you really should love me because everything that I do is good because Jesus died for me. No, Jesus died for me because so much of what I do is terrible. And yet he loved me anyway. And that is what we are called to do. Christians have throughout the millennia been recognized as people who love in The second century, in about 197 AD, Tertullian, who scholars think was probably converted two or three years before he wrote the Apology, he was a pagan and he became a Christian. And he reflects on pagan attitudes, which he probably recently shared about Christians. But it's very telling. He says in chapter 39 of the Apology, But it is mainly the deeds of love, of a love so noble, that lead many, these pagans, to put a brand upon us, that is the Christians. See, they say, how they love one another, for themselves are animated by mutual hatred. How they are ready even to die for one another, for they themselves will sooner put to death. And they are angry with us too, because we call each other brethren, for no other reason, as I think, than becomes because among themselves names of consanguinity are assumed in mere pretense of affection. What is he saying there? He's saying they despise us because we love another well, love one another. Why is that? Because they're full of hatred. They they despise us because we sacrifice for one another. Why is that? Because they're ready to kill. They hate the fact that we call each other brother and sister and father and mother. Well, why is that? Because they would only do so to deceive and manipulate people. But they recognize in us that when we say it, we really mean it. Covenant Church, oh, that the pagans of northwest Arkansas would despise us because of how deeply and wonderfully we love one another. Oh, that we would follow the great display of Christ in love and that we would say, if Jesus died for this person, then how can I do anything but love him or her? So the demand of love, the display of love, and finally, the development of love. So the last two verses, verses 11 and 12. Now in verse 11, we kind of get a summary here, beloved, that is, I love you. If God so loved us, and he does, we also ought to love one another, which is the demand of love. So verse 11 kind of functions as a summary. Then verse 12, we get the development of love. He makes a theological point here that we can, no one has ever seen God. We cannot see God the Father. And this is uh, something that he makes clear again in the Gospel of John, chapter 1, verse 18. No one has ever seen God, the only God who's at the Father's side. He has made him known. So, John wants to be clear that there are upper limits of our finitude, right? So, even if we're perfect and we're not, even if we're perfect, only God can understand God. Because only God, as we said a moment ago, is infinite in being and perfection. And yet God has made himself known to us through his son, to the one who's at the father's side. And the promise here is striking. If we love one another, John says, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. So there is a development on the back of the demand of love that follows in the it's in the context of the display of love this should be a great comfort to us if i i I, can you imagine me as a soldier it would our country would lose every war but um, if i was a soldier and somebody said jay all you have to do is be george washington then I'd give up, right? But notice that's not what John says. John says their display of the love of God, which we cannot be called to imitate because Jesus died for our sins. The sinless one died for our sins. So it is a display of love that we're called to imitate in some way, but it's not as though I can be Jesus to any one of you. I need, we all need Jesus. But there's a promise That the love of Christ is so going to work in me and in you that we can actually follow in the demand of love that the display of love brings. Let's think about how this would happen. So if you're concerned that, hey, I can't love people. Well, the answer is that God, the Holy Spirit works in you so that you can love people. Ezekiel chapter 36, verse 27. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. We do not try to follow the demand of love on our own strength. That would be foolish. Instead, we pray for God, the Holy Spirit to work powerfully in us. And in fact, in verse 11, we see a hint of that when he says, God abides in us. God, the Holy Spirit dwells in us and his love is perfected in us. Now, his love is perfected in us, not because his love needs perfection. His perfect love needs no perfection, but because we need to be perfected by this perfect love. The splendor of sunlight is seen through the prism when the reflected light comes out and you see a beautiful rainbow. But the prism does not change the sunlight. The the prism does not improve the sunlight. Instead, we see how spectacular the sunlight is because of the prism. So too, his love remains perfect even as it shines through us and out to other people. When Jesus touched lepers, he made the lepers clean. He did not become unclean by them. So, too, the love of God changes, shapes, and transforms us so that we can love each other. So, the demand of love is not a burden. It's a promise. Love one another and the love of God will work in you so that you can love one another. I'll finish here with a piece of history. And it, it involves a Polish man. So you'll see, you'll hear me try to pronounce something in Polish. Okay. Schenk Givjovnicek, died on March 13th, 1995. He was 93 years old. So Gijovnicek was 93 years old. For 53 and a half years, since August 1941, August, 19, August 14th, 1941, Gijovnicek expressed his thanks for the gift of life. He had been a Polish army sergeant in World War II, and he'd, beca- he'd been captured by the Gestapo and put in Auschwitz. And the Nazis believed in the prison camp, believed that a single prisoner had escaped. And so to just as a uh, cruel retribution for this supposed punishment, I don't even know if a single prisoner had escaped, but the Nazis thought one did. And so they said that they were going to choose 10 prisoners at random to be executed by starvation and dehydration. Gygyovnicchk was one of the 10 prisoners chosen. When he cried out because of his wife and his sons, an unmarried man, Maximilian Kolbe, who was a fellow prisoner, offered to take his place. The Nazis accepted, and Kolbe, who stayed alive even after the other nine victims died, was executed by lethal injection. Transferred to another concentration camp, Our Polish army sergeant stayed alive and remembered his fellow prisoners' ultimate sacrifice, saying in 1994, the year before he died, that so long as he has breath in his lungs, he would consider it his duty to tell people about the heroic act of love by Maximilian Kolbe. The Apostle John wants us to see that there is a greater heroic act of love than the many great acts of love by servicemen and women, by Maximilian Kolbe in a Nazi concentration camp. It is Jesus Christ, the innocent one, the glorious son of God, crucified between two thieves, not a mere spectacle, not a mere display, but a sacrifice For sins, not for his own sins, but for yours and for mine. And that kind of love is deeply transformative. The cross does real work. It displays God's love. It's a profound demonstration of the love. But God, the Holy Spirit works that same love into our hearts so we can love God. And love one another. So let's do so. Let's love one another. Come back tonight. And let's celebrate the Lord's Supper together. Tomorrow is Memorial Day. But we celebrate a memorial. Of the great heroic self-sacrifice. Of the Lord Jesus Sunday to Sunday. So come back. Let's pray. Heavenly Father we pray. That you would work deep and abiding love in all our hearts for you and for each other, that we may love one another deeply. Lord, may we long to see people and to see ourselves grow in the grace, knowledge, and love of Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen. Amen.